Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 1970s felt like a decade of change. The Beatles, one of the UK's biggest cultural exports, rocked the Western world when they announced their split. The event is so momentous that historians may one day view it as a landmark in the decline of the British Empire. The Beatles are breaking up. Cold War tensions that have been building up over the last two decades began easing starting with the U.S. deciding to pull out of Vietnam. After nearly eight years of fighting and more than four years of negotiations, U.S. troops would withdraw in 60 days. There was a sense that an era of cooperation might be arriving. In 1971, Communist China was permitted to join the U.N. The moment was a turning point in history, foreshadowing vast changes in international relations. And two years later, the U.K. became the ninth country to join the European Economic Community. Almost the final chapter in 10 years of hard bargaining with the signing of the Treaty of Accession. In 1974, a Labour government led by Harold Wilson was elected. And the story of the night, Labour is now set for having a clear overall majority. They were expected to be far less anti-communist than their Conservative predecessors. That year especially, new possibilities were opening up. My mum, for one, had made a huge life-changing decision to study dance at one of the world's greatest ballet academies in the Soviet Union. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I mean, it was a very, very tricky time. This is 1974. I'm Jake Warren, and from Message Heard, this is Finding Natasha. So, my mum's dance teacher, Anna Northcote, knew that her dream was realistic. This kind of trip to the Soviet Union wasn't unheard of, it was actually one of the British government's main diplomatic tactics during the Cold War. Their military power didn't compare to that of the Americans or the Soviets, and so they did a lot of cultural diplomacy. They were sending British ideas and culture straight to the Russians. That, Anna Northcote explained to my mum, was how her trip to Russia could actually happen. She said there's an organisation called the British Council, and the British Council was the UK's international organisation for cultural relations and educational opportunities. The British Council is an organisation within the British Foreign Office. They had done this kind of work with the Soviet Union since 1955. And then in 1959, this relationship was formalised when the two governments signed an agreement to establish relations in the scientific, technological, educational and cultural fields. This meant exchanges of scientists, artists, or students. And they had had quite a few up until early 70s. I think they'd had a pianist who went to the Moscow Conservatoire. They'd had 
a few exchanges, but they had never had a ballet exchange scholarship between the school. They'd never had that. And Anna Northcote thought, well, this is possible. Although when this process started, there was a lot of things against me. Mikhail Baryshnikov of Leningrad doing Solar's dance from Bayadetka. Baryshnikov's technique is faultless, his interpretation magnificent. Mikhail Baryshnikov, one of the greatest living legends of ballet and stars of the Kirov, defected from the Soviet Union in June 1974. Back then, he was a star all over the world. He is still considered one of the best to have ever danced. Although to some, even more impressive than his ballet was his role in Sex and the City as Carrie's boyfriend, Alexander. Well, it's very red downstairs. Sadly, this would expect it of Russia. <laughs> but anyway, back to June 1974. Barishnikov was on tour in Canada with his ballet company, The Bolshoi. And one day, while walking around Toronto in between performances, Barishnikov somehow managed to get away from his KGB handlers. He dodged into a crowd of people, lost the secret agents who had been watching his every step, jumped into a waiting car, and hid out until the Canadian government granted him asylum. It was an embarrassment for the Soviet Union, and the defection happened right around the same time as the plans for my mum's potential exchange were being made, thanks to Anna Northcote. I don't know actually whether she knew someone in the British Council, but the British Council were made aware of my violent wish to go. I think it was the synchronicity really, because I think they were looking for a cultural exchange that would give them a bit of a bit more high profile and the British Council agreed to fund a scholarship for a young ballet dancer either to the Bolshoi or the Kirov. But before giving the scholarship to my mum they needed to make sure she was good enough. I remember they asked the most important person in British ballet to come and watch me in a class and that was the great Dame Nanette de Valois, who founded, Sadler's Wells founded, went on to become the Royal Ballet. She was the mother of ballet in England. And she amazingly agreed to come. I was in a class with quite a few other people. And I remember her coming in with several other important looking people. And she sat down and she watched the class and I was terrified. But at the end of the class, I was introduced to her and I shook her hand and she had these amazing Irish twinkly blue eyes. and. I curtsied and said something inane, and she smiled at me and said, mm, that's interesting, isn't it? She said, I remember saying, that that would be an interesting thing for, for a young English person to go to uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, she obviously uh, agreed that it was worth sending me. I don't think she saw any spectacular talent in me, otherwise I would have thought she would have wanted me for the Royal Ballet, but... She saw I had a physical aptitude and some talent, and she obviously just said yes, you know. And I was then awarded the scholarship. She'd be going to the Kirov in Leningrad for a full year. This kind of success is what her mum had wanted for her ever since that first ballet class. And she was hoping that maybe her dad would also finally be impressed. She couldn't wait to tell her parents. My mother was delighted. My father wasn't really around at that time. The day before I went, which is obviously many months later, because there's so much to organise, my father returned to a family home, maybe collect some stuff. He certainly wasn't living there. 
and he knew I was due to travel, I think, the next day. And he was in his study and I went in there and I have a very clear memory because it was the first and only time I ever saw my father cry. Um, and I said to him, oh, daddy, aren't you excited for me? I mean, I was just so unbelievably naive and had no idea what I was going into. And his eyes filled up with tears and he said, no, I'm frightened. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you don't know what they're like. I didn't understand his comment. He appeared to be very negative about Russia and Russians. And of course, I, I had no idea at that time that uh, he had a brother, older brother, um, Lutzi or Laszlo, a beautiful young man. Uh, he, we believe he perished at the age 24 on the Russian front. He was made to fight. The Russians made the Jews fight for them, young men fight for them, and he died of typhus on the Russian front, we believe. And uh, it's difficult for me because my I grew up under a wall of silence. My father never, ever discussed it. It was just simply too horrific what had happened. If you remember, my grandfather arrived in the UK as a child refugee. He was able to get here for a British rescue program called Kinder Transport. But only he was allowed to emigrate this way. And so his older brother Lutzi had to find a different way out. He had two options. He could stay where he was and risk being taken to a concentration camp. Or he could try going east to the Soviet Union. Which is what he did and then died fighting for the Soviets during World War II. My grandfather repressed thoughts about his brother's death and my mum's trip must have awakened something deep within him. He was afraid for her, afraid of history repeating itself. You know, the Russians, they had quite a brutal history and um, he was scared for me and rightly so and he wept and I remember being extremely shocked and a bit annoyed because I thought he wasn't giving me the support and he should be just fating me with great praise and telling me everything was going to be wonderful and it wasn't like that. But interesting as well, I remember saying to my mother just before I left that daddy had burst into tears when he said goodbye to me and I remember her crying because she could not bear the thought of him crying. So very sad really because obviously she had still had very deep feelings for him and she was immensely distressed to think of him distress but I mean it was all irrelevant to me really I just was too busy in my fantasies that I was going somewhere absolutely marvellous that someone was going to wave a magic wand that I was suddenly going to have this marvellous training and become this marvellous ballerina and uh, looking back I mean it all sounds so so stupid really I had just no idea what I was going into. But I suppose to be fair to myself, not, not many people at that time had any idea how tough it was in the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And the few people that had gone in experienced life that they'd been allowed to see and experience. And I was actually joining a school, you know, living a life and seeing things and experiencing things that the Soviet girls and boys were. Um, we didn't really know how tough that was. And as it proved to be particularly tough for a rather spoiled, molly-cuddled, privately educated, soft <laughs> girl of 17, I, you know, it was a pretty horrendous shock. Of course, this was going to be more than just a trip. It was also a diplomatic operation. 
the Foreign Office was planning the exchange in great detail. And because it could actually be dangerous for Mum, they tried to prepare her for it. I was asked to go and did go to this very scary, officious-looking office in the mall, in Whitehall, where three men in grey suits sat at the other side of the table and I sat in front of them and they told me a lot of peculiar things that didn't make any sense to me, like things I mustn't discuss, things I mustn't show interest in, things I mustn't ask, things I should be careful of. I mean, they may as well have been talking to me in Mandarin, really. I just remember sort of gazing around the room, being far more interested in this fusty office and just wanting to get out there as soon as possible, really. I, it was all just a bit surreal. I do remember one of the men saying to me, you do understand, Debbie, don't you, that if a Russian person is found with foreign currency, it's, that's actually punishable by death. So if you have actually got any sterling on you or you take sterling with you, you better make absolutely sure you don't give it to anybody. At first, I wasn't sure whether to believe what these officials apparently told my mum. But it turns out that having foreign currency was punishable by death, sort of. For example, for illegally trading large amounts of Western money. But neither warnings from these men nor her father before them put her off. She found a way to train at the Kirov, the greatest ballet academy in the world. Nothing would spoil that. Mum arrived in Leningrad in autumn 1974, just before the start of the school year. And for all her excitement, pretty much as soon as she got there, it became clear that something wasn't right. I realised I wasn't actually wanted. Uh, I had been thrust on this school. I was obviously going to be a major inconvenience. And the other girls had been told to not have anything to do with me. You know, I was seen as a very suspicious, I was a Westerner. I mean, if you saw a Westerner normally in the Soviet Union at that time, you'd, they'd be greeted with great suspicion. And it was no different being a, a student in the school. And the girls, a few boys there, were told, basically, don't speak to her. Did you find out at the time that you weren't wanted? Or did you find out after? In my feeble attempts to be friendly to the four other girls that I shared this dormitory with. They ignored me. They didn't really respond, simply wouldn't engage with me. I mean, obviously, my Russian was pretty awful, pathetic, but there was nothing in place. You know, no, nobody was put in place to say, for example, you know, take her to the cafeteria, show her where she gets her meals, show her where she keeps her clothes or her, you know, there was nothing like that. I was literally just dumped on them. The school didn't want me. And I was just simply left to get on with it. And I actually wandered around this huge building just trying to find out where to go. It was a huge shock and a brutal realisation that uh, I was not going to be welcomed and I was not going to be helped in any shape or form. She came here as someone who'd never belonged anywhere. At home and at school, she felt a distance between her and everyone else. Here in Russia, it was meant to be different. But the same thing was happening again. This is where Natasha comes in. Because it was only a few days in. I think I started the crying then. 
And I remember sitting on some stairs outside of an office where I heard typing and I was crying and this girl came out and she put her arm around me and she said to me in broken English, what is wrong? What is the matter? And uh, I was like a drowning person attaching myself to a log. There was this human being who was warm and kind and actually spoke a couple of words of English. And of course, I immediately burst into floods of tears. And, you know, I think that was that. She was stuck with me. I found out where she worked. She was a secretary in the school who loved the ballet, passionately loved the ballet. And that was as near as she got to it, working in in one of the school offices. And she'd obviously heard about the English girl, but now she was confronted with me and crying and she helped me. She showed me where the cafeteria was. She showed me other things. She showed me where I could get, for example, I had no towels to wipe my face when I washed or all these things, you know. Natasha helped my mum in so many practical ways. Knowing how to get food or where to find towels made a world of difference. She became my saviour. What did she look like at the time? How would you... She was beautiful. She was a year older than me, about a year and a half older than me. I, I think she was 18 and a half, something like that. She had greeny colour eyes and brown hair and a lovely oval face, very Russian looking, sweet. And the thing that I remember most about her was her innocence. She was incredibly innocent. And also very bright and hungry to know about the West. She was like lots of young people. She was obviously, you know, fascinated by this secret world that they suspected and seen a few little glimpses of. She had that sort of bravery. There was a bravery about her, you know. um, She called herself a dissident even then. (laughs) Mum latched onto Natasha pretty much immediately. When she was with her, she felt something something that she hadn't really experienced much before. And their dynamic must have been a bit odd. So would you say you you two were friends then? Well, it was impossible in the sense of friends that communicate. She had a few words of English and I had a few words of Russian. It was more a younger girl collapsing hysterically, obsessively following around and waiting for her outside the door of the office for her to come out because she was the only friendly face. I looked towards her for everything. She took me out into the street. She bought me apples. She she was kind and she was the only person who who showed me any companionship or kindness. In just a few weeks, it seemed like everything had changed for my mum. Her friendship with Natasha quickly led to making another friend. Oh, yeah, she had a friend, Genia, who also worked in the school, a little bit older than her. Um, and Genia had this, I don't know if it was an office or a room, what she was doing quite in the basement. And we used to, she used to take me down there. And Genia used to brew up this, it was like Turkish coffee in this funny little pot. And I remember being absolutely thrilled at the smell and taste of this coffee <laughs> because... All we had really was that 
lukewarm Russian tea in a glass, which was quite disgusting. Yeah, we used to go down there and she and Jenny used to, Natasha and Jenny used to gabble away in Russian. And I just loved it because I felt warm and there were two girls who were just warm and friendly to me. So you were a part of something? I felt part of something. Coming up after a very quick break, a pretty big development in our search for Natasha. A few weeks after we first spoke, Olga, the Russian investigator who I enlisted to help me find Natasha, got back in touch. Hi, Olga. How's it going? Hi, fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, so it sounds like you have uncovered exciting information. <laughs> I have found something that is true. So um, I found Natasha. So it turns out finding Natasha wasn't as difficult as my mum thought it would be. I think she lives in St. Petersburg uh, wow. still and probably by the same address. At least not when you're a professional people finder, have access to the internet and are actually able to use it, unlike my mum. What I did is I checked her address and it seems that she still owns the flat. Not to sell Olga short though, she did have to do some detective work. The paper you've given me with the details on Natasha and uh, holding the name, they have her name spelled in the wrong way. Which, in our defense, Olga says is pretty common. Russian names are usually spelled differently than how they're pronounced. But once she figured out the spelling, she found two women with Natasha's name living in what is now St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad. One of them is sort of prominent and she is known for her historical novels, so she's a writer. This Natasha was a few years younger than our Natasha would be, but Olga couldn't cross her off the list just yet. Only then, she found a picture of the right Natasha. And I was absolutely sure that this is her and that this is the person we've been looking for. Olga cross-referenced the name with the address that my mum remembered. And basically I just googled everything else. So this was probably not the toughest case Olga's ever taken on. But she found out that Natasha has lived in St. Petersburg her entire life. She used to study at the State Institute of Performing Arts and became qualified as a theatre expert. After graduating, Natasha became a cultural journalist who has been writing articles about ballet ever since the 70s. Also, I think what's important from my mum's perspective is for 50 years, she's kind of had a bit of a cloud over her, fearing that by Natasha helping her and, you know, saving her life, that she would have been punished and, you know, suffered because of her intervention in helping her. And I think, you know, just from the information that you've given us there, that clearly she's prominent in, you know, the St. Petersburg and Russian ballet world, you can kind of gather from that, that maybe that's not the case. And maybe actually she didn't suffer any consequences for helping mum. And, and I think she will be so glad to hear that because I think it will be like a weight off her shoulders. Yeah, I think we have to connect with Natasha and ask her about this story. Like, was she getting some sort of punishment for what she did? Might be the case that she was sort of punished by 
being prohibited to be a dancer because that's something that was done in that years. It turns out that before Natasha became a critic, she was a dancer herself. Mum remembered Natasha being a secretary at the school. Some of the smaller details are understandably hazy for her, hidden beneath a fog of time and trauma. So Olga is right. The only way I can find out what really happened is by actually talking to Natasha herself. Well, thanks, Olga, as always. Uh, You're nice welcome. to chat to you. In the next episode, we reach out to Natasha. So I guess we'll just wait to hear from you once you've, once you've kind of chatted to her. The woman who back in 1974 saved my mum's life. You can hear what happened right now in this same feed. Finally, Natasha is a Message Heard production. It's hosted by me, Jake Warren, and produced by Sandra Ferrari and Jake Atayevich, edited by Jake Atayevich, and exec produced by Sandra Ferrari. A huge thank you goes to Olga, without whom we could have never pulled this off. The theme music is by Matt Huxley. <laughs>